0: From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations.
1: In the Western world, which includes Christianity and depictions of, of biblical characters, um, everything around you is white.
0: I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. We have two special treats for you today. The first is that I'll be joined by my executive producer, my friend, my colleague, Rabbi Jacob Staub, who directs the Evolve Project and and oversees everything we do. Our second treat is we have as a guest, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney. We'll be discussing her Evolve essay, Whitewashing Biblical Characters, and a little bit, her follow-up essay for Revolve, Reading the Bible Scriptures While Womanist. I'll give more of her bio in a minute, but just know she's an African-American Bible scholar and Episcopal priest who I first heard of when we were members of the same Philadelphia synagogue. And as we found out, she's really into sci-fi and Star Wars stuff. And it comes up briefly on the, in the podcast interview. Truthfully, if Rabbi Staub hadn't been there to to hold me in check, I I, might have just veered off and become a Star Wars podcast, for for better or worse. Instead, we look at the ways in which the history of art, biblical criticism, even popular culture, that's why we veer into Star Wars, have shaped the misperception that major and minor biblical characters were white. When, of course, they weren't. They were darker-skinned Afro-Asiatic people. Reverend Gaffney talks about what, what this has meant for people of color, including Jews of color, for white Jews, and why it really is important, especially now, to have more accurate mental and actual images of what our major biblical characters look like, what cultures they represented, what assumptions they may have carried with them and we have about them. We also get into Reverend Gaffney's engagement and involvement with the Jewish community, culture, and religion. I mean, after all, it's not every Episcopal priest who becomes a regular at Shabbat services and gives Devar Torah, divrei Torah. So there's a lot to jump into. A few notes. First off, a little Wikipedia here. There are references to a couple of thinkers, including David Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. I've got his treatises on my bookshelf. No, just kidding, I don't. And Martin North, a 20th century German scholar of the Hebrew Bible. Gaffney describes how both of these renowned thinkers brought a white supremacist view to biblical scholarship that impacts our our view to this day. Okay, more fun, the Star Wars references. Reverend Gaffney refers to John Boyega, who plays the stormtrooper turned freedom fighter Finn. In the sequel trilogy, he does he does a great job, even though his character could have had a better character arc. And Moses Ingram, an actress who plays an Inquisitor and former Jedi that hunts Jedi in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi that came out earlier this summer. I promise this will all make sense if you listen. There's also a reference to Jephthaft, who, unlike Noah or Moses, has not gotten the Hollywood treatment yet. But... He is a biblical character from from the book of Judges. If you want to look up his story, it can be found in chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Judges. As a reminder, all Evolve essays can be found at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Reading Reverend Gaffney's essays will give you a richer listening experience, but it's not necessary to follow along with the conversation. If you're interested in nuanced discussion about race and Judaism, there are plenty of other in-depth essays on the Evolve site. Okay, now I want to officially welcome Rabbi Jacob Staub, PhD, to the show. Uh, Rabbi Staub is often behind the scenes, but here you are on the microphone. Uh, uh, welcome. Great to have you here.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. I, I'm a great fan when I'm not on, and <laughs> I guess I'll listen to the, this episode also, <laughs> even though I am.
0: Fantastic. Okay, now it's time for the official introduction of our guests. The Reverend Will Gaffney, PhD, is professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. She's the author of several books, including *Womenist Midrash, a reintroduction to Women of the Torah and the Throne, and Daughters of Miriam, Women Prophets in Ancient Israel. Her latest book is Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church, and we have a link to purchase in our show notes. So, Reverend Gaffney, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, especially with a friend and colleague from years gone by. Good to see you.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful to see you.
0: I guess I want to dive right into your essay because it has so many implications for... So many things we're thinking about now as a society and and I was struck by some of your writing about when when you were a little girl really first becoming conscious of the world and seeing seeing and and internalizing white Jesus depictions of white biblical characters and and I'm wondering how that affected you and how you had the strength, the resolve, the knowledge to know right at whatever age we're talking about, know something, something about this is wrong, and I'm going to explore what. So I I I, w- I wanted to to learn more about <laughs> your your origin with this as we as we discuss this this topic.
1: It means that I had two sets of ideas that didn't live together well at the same time. So I was uh, well-formed and well-cultured in uh, the Western world, which includes Christianity and depictions of, of biblical characters. Um, everything around you uh, is white. Uh, the classical works of art are white. Uh, the music that is deemed classical comes from Europe. So I was nurtured in that, as we all are, if we were raised in a Western country or Particularly in the United States of America. But at the same time, I was a Black child, the parents of the child of Black parents in the 60s and 70s who had their own uh, radicalizations into Black power. So I had a secondary curriculum at home. My very first book was She Wanted to Read about Mary McLeod Bethune. And then my first book, I checked out of the library uh, was the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. So I'm reading about all of these folk and getting uh, nurtured in my culture and nurtured to prepare me to encounter difficulty when I walk out of the front door, but then we walk into a church uh, with a white Jesus. At some points in the Black Power Movement, those visualizations were challenged, and I remember, you know, hearing people talk about, you know, Black Jesus or White Jesus, and some Black Jesus a symbol of power and authority, and others were like, "That's cool, but that's not the real Jesus." So I lived in that world, trying to make sense of that, but there came a moment reading scripture, and I remember reading this, I, may, I know I've heard it, but this was when I read it, I was reading in the Song of Songs, where it says that the woman is, in the translation I was reading, dark but comely, black but beautiful, meaning beautiful in spite of being black, because that does not lead towards beauty. And I knew that was wrong. I was comfortable in myself to be able to say this part of the Bible is wrong. I didn't say it out loud to a lot of people. Um, I was bothered by it, but I was absolutely convinced that that line was wrong. Didn't know all the things that went into it being wrong. But I knew as a Black girl that I was beautiful because of my Blackness. And not in spite of it.
2: Beautiful.
0: And there's a, a lot there to unpack, and I'm, I'm really grateful. I have uh, Rabbi Jacob here with me to help me uh, okay. to help me unpack it. So, um,
2: so let me begin I, by saying, sure. I just love the whitewashing biblical characters essay. Before before I read it, I kind of knew that the Israelites were not white. I mean, I taught that they weren't, but I didn't have any evidence except for Boxwood reference, you know, post-biblically. And so we were not, not German, not Ethiopian, something in the middle. Um, but that, I would say right now, I'm in the middle, you know, I'm not as light as, as German. So, um, so it, it wasn't very definitive it was you just i just had to say it right this is part of uh a white rereading but i didn't have any i didn't know why i knew it and you make it so simple and you know were there any white people in the ancient afro-asiatic world as you put it and you go, duh the answer is obvious um, and so, I just want to first say, wow! It, cha- you know, it changes a lot—not just about biblical characters—that was really helpful to me. But second, it is obvious once you hear it. And I—I uh, I just want to ask whether you're a lone voice here, whether lots of people saying this nowadays.
1: It depends on the circles in which you're discussing. This is also an example of having two sets of realities going on at the same time. Biblical Hebrew, modern Hebrew, but really I'm going to focus on the ancient language. Languages are categorized in families. Uh, People may know that uh, French is a romance language bundled up with with Latin and some other languages. The scholarly categorization of Hebrew is Afro-Asiatic, and there's a list of Afro-Asiatic languages that include Ge'ez, which is the ancient language of the Ethiopian people. Not surprisingly, Arabic and Aramaic, they're in that family. So scholars have the word, the concept of Afroasiatic to categorize these languages in the family tree. So that's a long-standing term. What's newer is some of us using it instead of ancient Near Eastern. And the reason for this is this same reason for not using the Middle East, although it's almost impossible to get rid of the Middle East and MENA, the Middle East and North Africa. The reason is middle of the East from where? That original designation is a European's perspective. So from Europe, it's Eastward, right? So rather than naming a region of the world, its languages, its cultures, its religious literatures from a Eurocentric perspective, literally in terms of the geography rise to the name, we talk about the region. Uh, So it's Afro-Asiatic because those are the two continental masses on which these people lived and thrived and left religious and cultural legacies. So I do have this happen with my students when I say uh, we're going to be Carmen Miranda or one of those, another cartoon character. Where in the world are we? So tell me in my intro to interpreting the Hebrew Bible in context, course, uh, what continents are we working with? And somebody will always say the Middle East. Which of the seven continents is the Middle East? I didn't learn that as a continent. And they will struggle. And they'll say, Africa and Asia, and then somebody will say Europe, like, okay, well, when you get to the New Testament, and Paul's writing to the Romans, we can talk about Europe. But that's not where we are. And there's, there is always that moment of shock, confusion, acceptance. And oh, yeah. So I also have them look at maps, and, you know, point it out with their fingers so that they can contextually do it.
0: I kind of wondered, reading reading that, if uh, in in your essay, if if by extending that out, you, you think it would be helpful to lose terms like the West or the East, because all of these are subjective, to, based on you know wherever wherever you are in the world, right?
1: That would be useful. It would be difficult uh, to talk and communicate with the way the world has been shaped and the ideas that go along with those. Uh, but the notion that we're now seeing where occasionally countries named the way they name themselves rather than the way uh, English speakers name them, right? Uh, doing the same thing with people's names. So uh, naming is important and it would be useful to hear the way peoples and communities and regions name themselves. Uh, because naming is also a colonizing tool. You know, we organize these peoples, we categorize them, we name them, we put them into groups.
2: So it speaks to the uh, whole imperialistic, supersessionist viewpoint of medieval and modern Christianity, that it was and is inconceivable to people, to white men, that biblical characters would not have been white, right? It's right. just, it's inconceivable. Christianity, you know, we run into this Jewishly also, since Christianity is the true Israel, so Israel must look European, because European Christians are, are the true Christians. And it's, um, and of course it's, it's inconceivable that the biblical narrative, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, um, could, could be peopled by uh, non white people, you know, that, that right? until the film, what is the, uh, the Moses film? The Prince. Yeah, Egypt. Prince of Egypt. Yeah. So, I mean, that, but um, I, I wonder if you can review, I, I thought you did a great job. You review some of the ways in which people like David Hume and Martin Note. Um, Oh. Just make this scholarly counterfactual uh, claim that everybody's white, just to, uh... Certainly,
1: uh, I have written in the uh, essay for Evolve and in some of my own uh, scholarly writing, pointing out how some of the scholars that have been important to uh, lots of intellectual work were at the same time um, deeply entrenched in white supremacy and writing out of that white supremacy into their discourses. So uh, Martin Note is a noted Hebrew biblical uh, Old Testament scholar uh, whose theories are still engaged by my PhD students uh, because they are important steps in the building of the field. And uh, he wrote that essentially... uh, that the, well not, he didn't, write. essentially this is a a quote, that the Egyptians were wrong when they portrayed themselves with brown skin. Uh, At this point, I think most people have seen a piece of Egyptian papyrus uh, with uh, characters, maybe the gods, maybe uh, ordinary people, maybe royals, uh, but they're brown. And they were browner uh, 3,000, 4,000, and 5,000 years ago. And particularly the, uh, the Nubians, who are sometimes translated as Ethiopians in the Bible, that they were wrong. And then he went and described their specifics with, with dark skin, with thick lips, with broad noses. Um, and he uses Negroid, I believe, that they made themselves look Negroid. Now, I went and looked at the date in which he was writing this. And it was right in the middle of the civil rights struggle. So I make an argument that he's doing his academic work being bothered by these images because he's bothered by the black people in the streets demanding the right to vote. But he actually wrote that these ancient folk were wrong to present themselves looking as though they might have been Negroes because that just simply was not possible in his worldview.
0: If you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. If you're a new listener, welcome! Bruchim Habaim. Check out our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. And please, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings really help other people find out about the show, and we want other people to listen, so... It works. Thank you. All right. Now back to our interview with Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney.
2: One of my favorite lines in your piece is "decentering the white male scholarly voice that masquerades as normative and Thank neutral. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, just expand on it and ex- also maybe if you like expand on how a womanist reading is from your other evolved recent article of the text addresses this, but basically what needs to be decentered and well, I, you know what I mean, yeah.
1: yeah. So there was a time when all of our education was, well, edu- scholars of education call the banking model. Uh, you sit in, the, in your chair with your pen or now your tablet and actually we started with tablets, now we have a different kind of tablet, from clay tablets to digital tablets. That, that's a book in there somewhere. Uh, and you wrote down and learned what the voice of authority told you, right? Uh, and that's how biblical scholarship and, and other things have worked. This is what the text means. If you translate this way, you follow these rules, you'll get the true meaning of the text and the intent of the author, uh, the scholarship, that acknowledged the writer is a person who has uh, feelings and preferences and prejudices and how those things uh, shape the work that they do. And so feminists would talk about um, their identity as women or their identity as queer women and how that gave rise to their questions and how it helped them answer them. But of white male scholars and those trained to write as they do, write as though they have no body, no culture that influences their outcome. And so uh, womanists, which are uh, Black feminists that have a much more intersectional approach to scholarship, looking at the ways in which the oppressions that arise from race, ethnicity, class, gender, immigration status, ability, disability, uh, and more uh, affect Black women in our communities, the woman is also talk who we are and how that shapes what uh, we do. So uh, a brief example, um, right now I'm working the next volume of uh, Electionary, which is Loosely, a calendar of preaching that puts the readings together and gives reflections on them. And um, as I'm writing, I'm very much aware of Vivaldi, what happened in Buffalo of the Russo-Ukrainian war. Um, So I talk about how I see some texts differently uh, because I have these spectacles of violence before me. Um, And so that comes out in the work. Whereas someone else writing from that uh, white male, uh, no culture, no voice perspective, might not acknowledge uh, what's happening in the world, how they feel about it and how it shapes how they hear texts.
2: Thank you. I, I also want to elicit maybe an example from, again, the second article on reading the Bible as a womanist um, or i that wasn't the exact title. I liked your title better. <laughs> um, that uh, shows how you read a text and pay attention to the people who are not centered in the text. So Jephthah, whatever you want. You know. um,
1: so since you mentioned Jephthah.
0: And Jephthah is from, from the book of Judges, is that yes. right?
1: yes. Uh, Some people are familiar with the text about his daughter, and some people are not. It is uh, a brutal and horrific text in the Hebrew Bible in which uh, a woman, a young woman, uh, who's not at the age of of marriage, she's on the cusp of womanhood, is offered as a sacrifice by her father. Uh, That has a front story that tells about the life of her father. And I've written on both of them. But in this article, I decided to do the piece on the father uh, because of brevity and also not to do all the gory details that would need to be done to do the daughter story justice. And so this man who makes this vow that's not in keeping with the way you worship the God of Israel in the book of Judges or at any point in the Hebrew Bible, how does a person get to the point where they make that kind of vow and let alone carry it out? And for me, it was very much like watching stories of uh, notorious criminals who have done grotesque things in the community. And then when they get to tell their story for their sentencing, The way they were raised or abused or mistreated does not excuse their deeds because perhaps a life was lost or damaged significantly, but it explains how a woman who was battered her entire life struck back and killed her husband. You get a different perspective on the violence when you hear the backstory. So I dug into the background of Jephthah because I wanted to tell the whole story of the daughter of Jephthah. And that meant doing a generational, multi-generational look if possible. But I also wanted the reader to have some empathy for Jephthah as a person, for this boy who was treated in this way, uh, who didn't have uh, good role models, good coping skills, uh, good nurture in raising and how this broken boy became a broken man who went on then to break his daughter in the most terrible way.
2: Just to add to to that, um, one of the moving parts of your rendering of that text is your portrayal of his mother as an unwed, um, uh, poor person who uh, just Got me to empathize with Jeff's mother, which I had never done before, and that in itself is an important piece. I think of the descent to him. It's not just about men, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah. So the the women, the picture of the women around him. Uh, you have the birth mother, who is a sex worker, uh, from whom he's taken. Uh, that's traumatic at any age for a child. He's taken from his birth mother. Then he has a stepmother who doesn't want him. Uh, at some point, he had a, a wife because he produced a daughter, but she's not in that story. So is she deceased or just gone? Because he uh, may not be worth living with. He may not be much of a husband. And then he has this daughter. So he doesn't. He doesn't seem that he has any normative, stable, healing relationship with any woman from infancy to adulthood into being a father himself
2: yeah. okay brian take it oh <laughs> i
0: guess from from listening to you and from reading your essay i've been i've been i've been wondering about the the stakes in terms of people getting a better clear understanding of of who the biblical characters were, what their culture was, and and I mean, especially considering in in this country, fewer you know fewer people are identifying as as religious. And like how, what, where does this fit in with how we relate to one another as human beings? And I'm curious. I, I think I'm curious with how it compares to how our 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 views of the world of race and identity are shaped by. By pop culture, like I, I sometimes like to joke, but I think it's serious that my my sense of good and evil was shaped more by by Star Wars than than the Bible. Like I, I grew up, I grew up at an age when I think TV Guide used to used to list like or or some there used to be a list of the number of positive portrayals of of of, of black black characters on TV in a week because it because it was so few. So so clearly. Yeah. Like pop culture has has warped our sense of the world, so I think I spread that out beyond beyond a question. I apologize, but that's what some of the things your your essay brought brought for me.
1: So white supremacy is the foundation of our shared country and culture, and it's white supremacy that's active in whitewashing biblical characters and the teaching and preaching of Bible in Christian and Jewish contexts and also the whitewashing of the world in pop culture and sci-fi. We may have to podcast because I am absolutely a, a sci-fi person. So that you get in the Star Wars universe, uh, fantastic uh, aliens. How is it that they're aliens when they're at home, right? That's us calling somebody. They're natives, they're not aliens, but we get this fantastic creation of, of Of characters, you know, the infamous bar scene, and and you've got uh, music playing and all these different kinds of aliens. But the humans in Star Wars are all white until you get to Lando Calrissian. So even though they're teaching us good uh, cultural and interpersonal values, they are replicating white supremacy as normative to the point that when you get John Boyega cast as a stormtrooper before, the, clone of, um, uh, before the cloning of um uh, what's his name before the cloning of you know Boba Fett that you get this hostile reaction you get people trying to take the tank the film you get you know bad reviews on rotten tomatoes uh and now uh that this young woman, whose name is Moses Ingram, is playing one of Darth Vader's enforcers in the very latest Star Wars series. I've been watching
0: she, that, I admit. Been...
1: She is also oh, getting terrible hate mail, uh, all because she's a Black woman taking a role in this storied franchise. So they are really actually the same issue. Uh, hmm. The inability to see the world, whether our world or the world of the biblical text, or the worlds we imagine in a galaxy far, far away, to see them outside of a white dominant, white supremacist paradigm is the same issue. So the space in which I work against white supremacy uh, is Christian interpretation of scriptures, not just Christian interpretation, because I write for Jews as well. And I give very Torah and I speak in in synagogues. But to undo that corner of the white supremacist paradigm, uh, from the Christian perspective, it's important because a particular type of Christianity, a particular way of reading the Bible has been at the foundation of this country and the way we see and do things. And so unraveling that so that we can have a healthier, more nuanced understanding of this text. And then if the text becomes the basis for ethical and moral decisions, like are women fully human and fully created in the image of God so that we can make our own ethical and moral and medical decisions, even if someone doesn't agree with them, do we have the full capacity as human beings? To make a decision that someone else thinks is unethical, or must our agency be controlled by the state because we can't be trusted uh, and we don't have the right to make those decisions? Um, some of that is, is religious, and some of that is bad exegesis, bad interpretation of religious passages. So that's part of what's at stake at, at it for me. It's this part of the foundation of our culture and world, the implications.
0: While we've got another second of your time, if you're being inspired, enlightened, challenged by these groundbreaking conversations on the podcast, on the Evolve website, in the web conversations, you can support us. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Every gift matters. Make a statement about your values and support conversation at a time when dialogue is is, is really challenged across So many sectors of our society, but right here, it is happening. All right. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming.
2: So if I uh, may uh, indulge in a personal story that I think is relevant here. So back in the 1980s, the RRC, the Reconstructionist Robinical College, participated with many um, Christian seminaries uh, in a program. God, I don't even remember the name of it. It doesn't matter. But um,
1: seminarians, interacting. Sem-
2: yes, seminarians interacting. Thank you very much. Um, and as a part of this program, rabbinical students would visit Christian seminarians. And um, every two or three years, because we were really outnumbered, um, every two or three years, Christian seminarians would visit RRC. And part of what they did with, uh, when you visited another seminary was sit in on classes. And in this particular case, this particular year, they came on the week that we were studying Christian anti-Semitism in, um, in medieval Europe, it's a medieval Jewish civilization seminar that I taught, and that was what we were up to. And so the whole thing got transformed because I, I wasn't going to go through all the ways Jews were depicted, I wasn't going to go through all of the, all of, you know, the, the, the way I would do it with, with my rabbinical students, but we did talk about it. And what I remember most distinctly is I asked whether they studied this subject matter when they were in seminary, right? Because they they had, they seemed to be utterly unaware, right? And, and, uh, what was most striking about the answers was there were nine students, nine seminarians in the class, and eight of them had knew not, didn't know what we were talking about. And the only one who did was an African-American woman, right? I don't think she was you, but <laughs> I don't think you were in that class. No, but, yeah. um, and that was very... Instructive. i learned a lot from that i don't you know that oh we are not the only people who who suffer from christian um supremacy and col- uh, colonization and and discrimination that um this has consequences for african americans for africans for asians you know but uh but it was so striking first it was striking to me that Christian anti uh, the, And the reason they said they don't study Christian anti-Semitism is because that's not Christian, right? It's not Christian to be anti-Semitic, so it's not part of your training. So um, another piece of it. I, uh, but but what, what you're teaching here, what you're talking about is a, a white-centric, a European-centric, a Christian-centric uh, view of things that... Um, that don't take into account the experiences of other people or give them credit. So I just, I just wanted to share that story, part of the stakes that um, we're talking about.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. I participated in that program in, it would have been, it was the 90s, the mid-90s, and that's how I met uh, Fred Dobb, who is one of my dearest friends, he's a Recon rabbi. And uh, we maintained our friendship from then till now so that I'm godmother of both of his children and chanted one of the Sheva Barakot uh, at his wedding. Um, And so I really got an interest in appreciation for Judaism from the inside, but I just appreciated uh, hearing the Torah chanted um, and hearing the liturgy in Hebrew. The point that you raise about anti-Semitism and anti-antisemitism not being taught was brought home to me when I moved into the community where I met you. I was teaching at a Lutheran seminary, and Luther has uh, just a horrible treatise called On the Jews and Their Lies, in which he... Calls for the burning of Torahs and other sacred books and tearing down synagogues and so what and which what and so I had uh, many Jewish friends and got connected with the synagogue and became a dues-paying member of Dorsey Derek as you know for ten years I was there and my Jewish friends were asking me uh, do they teach this about Luther uh, do they teach about anti-Semitism there and so I just poked my nose around and to my horror found that they did not. And what the Lutherans were telling me was, well, that's over. And we passed a resolution condemning that about Martin Luther. And I said, when was that? And it was in the 80s. It was very recent. One faculty occasionally taught uh, a course on anti-Semitism and Luther, but it was a cyclical course. It wasn't a required course. Uh, And so I began uh, shaping my teaching uh, as uh, anti, anti-Semitic approach and being aware of anti-Judaism. And so that's why my courses are, uh, are Hebrew Bible. I am a scholar of Hebrew Bible, not presented as Old Testament. I studied with Jews, trained with Jews. So um, we teach the Hebrew Bible. I teach the Hebrew Bible as an independent uh, body of scripture that has its own merit and worth as a full and complete canon and revelation of God, uh, not as a stepping stone to another uh, text or testament. And when we look at how the New Testament writers use it, I always frame it as they saw in this passage, this, rather than this is predicting that. Um, Sometimes uh, those two things uh, work well together, sometimes they don't. But it's been very important for me Uh, to address antisemitism, as you know, I did at the beginning of the paper, uh, the essay on reading scripture as a womanist, uh, because we get the name womanist and the definitions from Alice Walker, who has her own history of antisemitism. So you're right, Jacob, that antisemitism and anti-Black bias, xenophobia, the, the hatred of others, anti-Muslim bias, it's all tied together and it's tied together in white supremacy. And whether the person enacting in, in it is themselves white is irrelevant, right? Uh, we uh, had a group of men uh, arrested for, or we have charges pending for their participation in the January 6th activities, Uh, And the leader of one of these white supremacist groups is uh, Hispanic, but the ideology is white supremacist. I do want to say something about Christians not owning our stuff. People who enslave, uh, people who go on crusades, uh, people who uh, do anti-Semitic violence, they're not real Christians because the love of Jesus commands us to love neighbor. If you pull out of the family tree all of the people who do horrific crimes to other people, then you are left with a fictional innocent Christianity. The reality is people who identify identify themselves as Christians, who participated in the life of the church, who received the sacraments, who had their children baptized, heck who were pastors and priests themselves, committed atrocities in the name of Christ. That is part of the history of Christianity. And we can reject those actions, but we do not have the right to pretend that there's something about the way in which Christianity has developed and been passed on that has not only made space for that kind of behavior, but in some ways would seem to have called for it. And you're right, Jacob, that the Christians who sometimes wrestle with this the most and out loud and in public are Christians who have markers of minoritization, Native Christians, Black Christians, queer Christians, some of whom are all of those things at once.
0: So at the same time, I mean, I think it's no secret at this point that 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 many Jewish communities are are still struggling with 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 um, with racism and 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 even even you know owning up to the idea that that Jews who've suffered so much you know can at the same time be racist or that you can have people of color and Jews are not necessarily mutually exclusive. What 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 um what should what should Jews be doing? What should Jewish communities be doing in, in, in wrestling with these texts in, 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 in gaining a fuller understanding and, and, and perhaps not just going around, you know, you know, thinking of our forefathers and foremothers as, 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 you know, white Europeans when they, when they clearly weren't.
1: One, I think it's important that when the, the community is being represented, uh, uh, in speech, as you just did, what should Jews do? I think what you're really asking is what should white passing Jews do, right? Because Jews of color are doing this work. I know some of them, some of the organizations, and begging some other, and begging white passing Jews to join and partner with the work. So one, acknowledge that when you say Jews, you have a set of assumptions that you now know are not correct. And so part of it is training yourself in your speech, in your writing, in your publication, to talk about what it means to be so deeply encultured that the presumption of Jew is this. And a small piece um, is what happens when someone you don't think is Jewish or doesn't look Jewish is what it really is, shows up on your doorstep, right? I'm not Jewish, but I participate in the life of Judaism. But I get I get what Black Jews get when I go someplace, someplace when even when I'm invited, because my last name Gaffney is is a Jewish name. That's a whole nother story. Uh, my name Will. Uh, many people think. I'm a man, and I'm not uh, naming names, but uh, a particular rabbi I know was was um, insistent that you know I was a, a male scholar, and perhaps thinking a Jewish scholar, and I didn't get the same welcome when he saw that Will and Gaffney went with black and woman. You knew I was a Christian and professor of Hebrew Bible at a seminary. Um, I have, you know, gone into to synagogues, and the uh, it's almost a cultural joke. You speak so well, right? Nobody tells white people you speak so well unless you're perhaps recovering from a, a speech impediment, right? So having people say, "How did you learn to read Hebrew?" The same way I learned to read every other language, right? The, that, that surprise that you're competent in something. Um, and I won't even tell you the number of people who, when they ask me, uh, you know, what do you do? And I say, I'm a professor of Hebrew Bible, that they will ask me then, do you read Hebrew? And I really wanna ask them, do you read the literature of your field? Are you competent in your job? Like, what kind of question is that? So that all comes out of the assumption of what a Jew or a Hebrew scholar is or should look like.
2: So uh, I wanted, I didn't want this conversation to end without me asking you what the, uh, you started to talk about what it's like as an Episcopal um, clergy person to participate as fully as you have. I I know about your participation. Reconstructionist Minyan Dor Derek in the Germantown Jewish Center that I belonged to, uh, where I heard a number of just dazzling, divrei Torah that you offered, and you were part of the conversation. You were um, you were very much um, an active member. But how, what the experience is like, and what can the rest of us Jews, I guess, what can what can Jews learn? About the advantages and the opportunities involved in yet really getting you know really getting in deep in, in, in being part or or just really familiar with other religious traditions ritual
1: I have to acknowledge that my participation and my response are both shaped by my Christian privilege right so I am coming from a dominant tradition into a minoritized tradition, uh, and so while we share the Hebrew Bible unequally and uneasily, right, my tradition does some things with the Hebrew Bible that are not appropriate to your tradition, so there is sort of hierarchy when I when I come to service rather than when you come to service with me, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, what I experienced personally is completely new set of windows on the word and world of the text and its interpretation. Uh, I had that experience with seminarians interacting. I also uh, really fell in love with rabbinic literature when I was doing my PhD. Uh, And I spent a lot of time with it and it shaped um, my first two monographs. Uh, So you mentioned the Boxwood text in the Mishnah, and I've actually written on that. Uh, That's the one piece I had uh, published uh, in Rabbinics, and I'm going to send you that, um, if I remember. So for me, uh, what I love particularly about uh, the reconstructing movement is the way people interpret the text, uh, discuss it, argue with it, and read it in a world in which it's a source for helping to shape them as moral and ethical beings. Now I bring a particular set of religious beliefs um, about God, even beyond my specific beliefs as a Christian. Uh, And one of the things I appreciated about the community is that um, people have different ways of thinking about uh, the biblical text and the deity it represents And whether or not there is a deity and whether or not there's a deity active in the world. And there's space for all of those things to be in conversation. Uh, Honestly, that's that's the thing about the rabbis uh, that I love, that you know, you'll get opposing responses on a question, but unlike Christians, they don't cut each other off, you know, and form an entirely new community and not speak to each other or go to war and slaughter each other. So for me, I was just getting a, a secondary and tertiary uh, education in the text. Um, and uh, I, I love the liturgy. I love the language. But I appreciated people who were really wrestling with a complex text and a complex world in complex and nuanced ways. And came a, a model. Uh, those sermon those divrei Torah, Uh, were in, that you heard were, were bundled and enlarged in my book, Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and of the throne. Uh, I've just finished the second volume on the early prophets and sent that off. Um, But that's part of, of what I got. uh, And, and I miss it since I'm out here and there's no recon anywhere near me.
2: (laughs) And we miss you. Um, So I just really want to thank you for being on this podcast and for writing the two essays for Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, which um, we will have the links to in the show notes. And it's just, it's been, every one of your answers have been really illuminating. And uh, I always learn very valuable things from you. Thank you.
0: I just also wanted to say thank you and, and thanks for making me think again about, I mean, so much is communicated in questions and, and so much subtlety and assumptions. So, so thank you for, uh, you know, holding a mirror up and, and uh, given, giving me an opportunity to learn.
1: Appreciate you all. It's been a privilege.
0: Thanks so much to listening to our interview with Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney. Thanks. Rabbi Jacob Staub, for for being in on on this interview. Your your voice and questions were invaluable as always. And now I'm talking to you, the listener. What did you think of today's episode? I want to hear from you. Evolve is about conversations, and you're a part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, criticism, if you have to, whatever you got. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with a new episode. Evolve: Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wachs. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. The show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, wishing you a Shana Tova, happy holidays. May it be a good year, a sweet year, a sweet happy new year. Let us have much to look forward to and let us build a better world this year.